Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura, and today we are going to discuss the rest of chapter 5 of James, which is verses 13 through 19, and I'm titling it, What Does It Mean to Pray a Prayer of Faith? The main verse in contention is verse 14, which says in the World English Bible, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the assembly and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then when you go on to verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will heal him who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. A lot of the translations word this in a very similar way. One that is significantly different to note is Young's literal translation that I'm reading from the Blue Letter Bible. Um, Let's start with verse 14. Is any infirm among you? Let him call for the elders of the assembly and let them pray over him, having anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of the faith shall save the distressed one, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if sins he may have committed, they shall be forgiven to him. In the New American Standard Bible with the edition of 1995, in verse 15, the main difference is that it says the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And then in the English Standard Version, instead of the word restore, it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So you can see they don't all say heal. And this will become more significant as we get into talking about what may be a translation issue with the word that is translated sick. Let's start with the immediate context of James chapter 4, verses 2b through 3, where it says, you don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and don't receive with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So right here, we see James saying that this is at least one reason why our prayers or requests might not be answered as we like. First, sometimes we just don't even ask, which is also mirrored in chapter 5, verses 13 through 19, by giving us specific examples of when to come in prayer. We're supposed to come when we're suffering in any kind of hardship, trial, or persecution, which implies emotional and mental distress that can come with anything. Suffering is something we perceive or feel. And second, if it is the opposite of suffering, if it is something that cheers our hearts, we're supposed to sing praises to God. In all that happens, we are supposed to come before our Maker in both petition and recognition because by Him and through Him, we live and move and have our being, as it is stated in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. And then there's a similar passage in Colossians 1 16. And then let's not forget James chapter 1, verse 5, where James talks about praying for wisdom without being double minded, but having faith in who God is. Now, we already know that James is pretty succinct. On one hand, he is explaining some things, but on the other hand, he expects some things of the gospel and the things that have been taught to be already understood. What he's saying should be understood in that context. After all, they are assembling under the name of Christ. 
I get that sense from verses 14 and 15. Unfortunately, we know how many people read or interpret this is wrong, both from comparing it to other scripture and from experience. For instance, Jesus himself prayed for the cup to be taken from him. Did he not have enough faith? No, he knew that the plan, the will of God the Father, surpassed his desire for immediate comfort. And so we get the ultimate example of how suffering can bring life to others. So then why does it seem to say that all we have to do is to go to the elders of our assembly and be anointed with oil, have them pray, and get healing? If you believe, as I do, that scripture is infallible and not contradictory, as well as usually best understood by the obvious reading, what are we to do here without making excuses? I've listed several things which have some semblance of order of priority, but not necessarily. One is pray for wisdom. The second thing I listed is to pull all of scripture together for a complete picture of what is said about prayer and healing. A third thing is to look at the whole letter or situation in which the particular scripture is given. The fourth is to be humble because even though we can and do learn hidden gems from scripture, there is always something more to learn. Fifth, consider whether this is a core doctrine, and here I don't think it is. Sixth, remember that no one scripture should be used to build a religion around it, like head coverings. Seven, make sure you are actually reading what it says and not reading into it what you have heard, what you want it to say, or you're just somehow not catching what it says. Eighth, read and or discuss what trusted people say, always comparing overall with scripture and being discerning about whether or not they have a humble heart. Nine, read different translations to get a better sense of the word usage. The Blue Letter Bible is a great place for this because you can click between several translations when looking at any passage. All that being said, what are our main questions here? I wrote down these. Are there different meanings of sick or the word that's translated as sick according to the original original language and context? What does it mean to anoint someone with oil and what is meant to happen in anointing him with oil? What is encapsulated in the phrase, in the name of the Lord? What is a prayer of faith? Is there any other good understanding of will heal him? And what does the Lord will raise him up mean? I read and listened to about seven different commentaries on the Blue Letter Bible. I also visited studylight.org, which has a multitude of commentaries that you can click on for every passage. I read the sections on this part of James in at least five of them. I also did a general internet search, which I am very leery of, but with careful evaluation of statements of faith and overall attitude you can find some things. And I have to tell you, I was frustrated and disappointed in most of what I read. Not because people weren't trying to be biblical, but because they either had no meaningful insights or they just used it as a springboard for a general discussion of prayer and attitude, and a few even kind of made up stuff. I did find two articles that I think are worth sharing, and they helped me decide how to view this part of James. Not that I'm claiming that I absolutely for sure have figured it out, but what I have read and come together 
what has come together in my mind with the context of all of this makes sense. I, of course, will link to these articles. The first is an article by Don Stewart on the Blue Letter Bible that clearly summarizes a variety of views about the interpretation of these verses. It was written very objectively. He doesn't actually state which view he goes with. The next article is on a website called Truth Snitch. I actually don't see her name anywhere on the website, but I really do like her statement of beliefs. And on this particular subject, she presents an extremely thorough discussion of the whole issue with a solidly biblical approach. Part of the issue comes down to the word translated as sick. It can and is simply translated as weak in other places. According to the article by Don Stewart, the word literally means without strength. It is not necessarily a term for physical sickness in this context. When it is used in the Gospels, it does speak of physical illness. However, when this word is used apart from the Gospels, it does not speak of physical illness. He gave two examples by Paul, both in 2 Corinthians 1 chapter 11 verse 29 and 1 chapter 13 verse 3, but you can also see the concept of weakness spoken of translated as weakness in several other scriptures. So the idea of using weakness as a metaphor for a spiritual condition is well established in the New Testament. Places like Matthew 26:41 Romans 4.19, Romans 8.3, Romans 14.1, Romans 15.1, 1 Corinthians 1.27, 1 Corinthians 4.10, and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7, 9, and 10. And we all use synonyms to express the same idea sometimes. So it makes sense that they might use different words that also mean weak. Since the whole letter from James is addressing attitudes of faith, like asking for wisdom, showing actions that show faith, taming our tongues, praying with right motives, having patience in hardship, not complaining. It seems a bit odd that he would insert something about physical healing here. This is even supported by the immediate context where he first discusses suffering and cheerfulness. And after he goes, after he talks about the prayer of faith and the the sickness or weakness, he goes right to talking about forgiving any sin. This gives credence to the idea that the weakness he has in mind is spiritual, just as Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians 11.29. Consider that James is constantly using metaphorical language to make his teaching points. He compares the tongue to a bridle, to a ship, to causing fire. He talks about looking in a mirror and um, how people respond to the law. He talks about doubt as being tossed on waves. Now, it's true that in those cases, he actually clarifies what the metaphor means. But what about your garments are moth-eaten when he's talking to the rich and nourished your hearts? He doesn't explain those. He just uses those. And that's also later in the letter. If it is metaphorical, meaning sick spiritually, then it follows that the healing is metaphorical, which is kind of borne out in the other translations that I read to you. And then with the implication, as we mentioned, where it talks about there may have been sinning involved in this weakness, it makes more sense that this is metaphorical as well. But what about the anointing with oil? Oil is regularly in the Old Testament and New Testament symbolic of God's Spirit, 
and in the same sense of being set apart for something. So although there is a case to be made for the oil bringing comfort to someone who is in a state of distress, again, in context, it is coming in that it's coming in the context that prayer is emphasized, not the oil doing something. So now let's talk about the phrase, in the name of the Lord. This is not a magic phrase that someone can say. It means that you are speaking according to his authority and will. There is a strong sense that a person saying this will know what God wants. Just like when James talks about praying for wisdom, we know that God wants us to have wisdom. We can pray in faith, in his name for that. Then also, as the author of Truth Snitch says, the example immediately following about Elijah is not about physical healing, even though there was an example of healing or resurrection, the ultimate healing, that could have been used. Using this particular example about Elijah, which was calling for rain, which you can read about in 1 Kings chapter 18, this emphasizes Elijah's assurance of representing God in an action against or because of conflict with Ahab, the epitome of a corrupt rich person. Elijah, by his trust in God, was shown as raised above Ahab. God exalted him in Ahab's eyes. This in spite of Elijah being a man with a nature like ours, prone to the same weaknesses and discouragement, which you can read about soon after the incident with the rain. It is a physical miracle in that it stopped and started rain in the physical world beyond the natural happenings, but it was showing the strength of God, like Jesus's miracles confirmed his claims, the justice of God against wickedness in the land and especially against the rich, corrupt rulers. And it was showing that Elijah represented God so that what Elijah said about needing to repent was corroborated. This was not a personal miracle, this time, for Elijah. James could also have chosen one of those, but he didn't. When James goes right on to talking of confessing sin, it is again in the theme of the letter of having a right attitude toward God and your fellow Christians. Note that this is not a confessing of sin to again be saved, but to preserve and build relationship among believers, those in the assembly with you. But go back to verse 15, where it says, the prayer of faith. Faith is not something you work up or foment as some sort of power. Faith is in the name of the Lord. Faith is in he who is and that we are encouraged to pray to. It is faith that God gives wisdom to those who ask. Faith that he spiritually sends the first and latter rain, as James metaphorically talks about in chapter 5, verse 7. It is faith that God is compassionate and merciful to those who seek him, that he works all things together for good for those who love him. For when we love him, we are called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight. And again, in verse 15, it says, if there have been sins, he will be forgiven. I think this tense is used because all sins will be forgiven, even those who have faith in God, sin, and whether those sins occur before or after the letter was written, they will be forgiven. And then it's all wrapped up in verse 19. We are to be compassionate with each other, helping each other to walk in truth. Now, it does use this phrase if someone wanders from the truth. Is it a believer who wanders? 
Well, maybe we all benefit from encouragement. Um, We can get sidetracked and get our eyes off of Christ. Or does it mean something like the same as falling away, which again, doesn't appear to mean someone who knew the truth, but someone who was presented with it, but didn't grasp onto it. So fell away. When it adds the phrase to save a soul from death, there's nothing else in the scripture that I can remember that ties this particular phrase to saying that someone isn't saved and is going to judgment. It could just be referring to the death that enters our lives when we sin. But either way, we're supposed to encourage each other in the truth. We're not supposed to complain and judge about other people's failures, but we're supposed to give the forgiveness and cover sins the way that ours have been taken care of. Personally, I would like to ask James a few things, but that will have to wait. And for now, we do have the rest of Scripture, and his letter has obviously been saved with the New Testament canon as part of Scripture. Thank God that he is there to grant us each wisdom to understand it, the Spirit to help us live it, and the patience to continue to learn what he has to teach us. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey.